Welcome to Midweek Liberty, a program designed to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, and to offer your mind critical thinking and adventure. I'm Jay Dillon Proctor. And I'm Anthony Allegria. And we're live outside today, enjoying the great liberties of nature. So you may hear some of those audio effects in there with that. Now, today we're going to be talking about New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and taking the Lord's name in vain, particularly regarding a statement he made in an interview here recently. Later, we're going to also discuss our culture's rather unfortunate affection for emotional policy instead of that which is based in reason and evidence. But before we go any further, let's get into this first topic of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and taking the Lord's name in vain. Now, a few days ago, he had participated in an interview where he was talking about his own works and also comparing himself to New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. Anthony, would you go ahead and read the quote he made in this interview? I believe when you go to the pearly gates and our Lord says, have you been a good progressive? He says, show me a list of what you got done. All right, so there are some serious theological issues with this, and it's not just the whole works-based theology. I want us to talk about taking the Lord's name in vain. Most people, when they're presented with the Ten Commandments, they will say, these are an objectively good list, though a lot of people who are atheist or agnostic may say the first few, those are only relevant to people who ascribe to the Judeo-Christian worldview, but I'm here to challenge that. All of the Ten Commandments are very important, and that is an objective thing. And you might ask how? Well, we're going to talk about that based on Governor Cuomo's quote here. What he is doing in this quote, if you'll notice, he says, when we get to the pearly gates, God is going to ask me, did you do enough to be a good progressive? What he is doing is he is ascribing the progressive ideology, which again, it's a political ideology, if that was executed well enough in his life. In a sense, he is basically saying God's motive is progressivism. And of course, if you are against progressivism, then you are against God. A lot of times we see politicians do this bad politician does this. This really is taking the Lord's name in vain. So often we may think that taking the Lord's name in vain is simply just using a swear word or even being casual with the name of God. But I think there's much more to this commandment than what we realize. Whenever we take our own motives and our own desires and we attribute that to God, that is a bad thing. Even when our motives may not necessarily be bad, a lot of times we do things in life which are rather benign. They may not necessarily be a sin thing, although they may not be the best thing in the world. There are a lot of things we do in life which are somewhat meaningless. But when we take our motives, and especially our motives which infect other people, and we attribute them to God, in other words, in, in a manner of manipulating others, we are in a very bad place. Those of you who know me, of course I'm a pastor here in Jolton, Tennessee, but I do a lot of different things on the side, and I have a few different hobbies one of which is I like to make synthesis music. If I were to come along and say, when I get to the pearly gates, God is going to ask, did you take enough of the, the ancient hymnity, the classics of music, and turn those into synthesis music? Well, that would be using the Lord's name in vain. While synthesis music in and of itself is not sin, to have fun with synthesizers, it is quite sinful to say that God's motive is purely centered around expanding the library of synthesis music. Another hobby I have is taking old firearms, using 3D printing to give them sort of new grips and a more modern feel around them. I do not expect when I get to the, the, the judgment seat of God, God to ask me, did you do enough to take old CZ-50 and CZ-70 pistols and modernize them and give them a more aesthetic and ergonomic feel to them? That again is using the Lord's name in vain to take our own motives, even though they may not be bad. It may not be bad to enjoy synthesis music. It may not be bad to enjoy some classic surplus firearms. But to take that 
to the level that we say we attribute God's motive to this, as if it is not our own motive. That is a big deal. That is using the Lord's name in vain. Anthony, you also brought up something interesting about the topic of idolatry earlier and how that relates to taking the Lord's name in vain. Yeah, interestingly, taking the Lord's name in vain and idolatry can really be seen to be complementary sins. And what I mean by that is, well, I'll explain. Idolatry is taking something that is not transcendent. In other words, it doesn't surpass human fallacy. And it's not divine, so it's not transcendent. And attributing transcendence to it. So you're basically making it holy. Now, taking the Lord's name in vain is taking a motive that isn't God's motive and attributing it to God. Now, in many ways, taking the Lord's name in vain is kind of taking the logical conclusion of idolatry and applying it in some sort of agenda or basically influencing people to behave or to be coerced into something else. Yeah, and basically taking the Lord's name in vain is saying we have our personal motive, but we're going to brand it as if it is God's motive in order to get you to do something. Take, for instance, here, of course, I'm a local pastor in the Jolton community. If I were to go around and tell people, when you get to the pearly gates, God's going to ask you, did you do enough to refurbish and beautify the building at Jolton Church of the Nazarene? That would be taking the Lord's name in vain. Is it a bad thing to have a nice building? Certainly not. And in fact, it's a very good thing, and God would even bless us having good buildings. However, God's motive, the primary expression of God's motive, is not that we would just have a nice building, but it's that we would have a flourishing manifestation of the kingdom, that we would all be living as the body of Christ. Having a nice building is a byproduct. It is a, a lesser thing. It is secondary to the main objective. And again, we should be very careful about what we attribute to the will of God. And on the topic of idolatry, really idolatry is treating things which are not God as if they are God. And that's very dangerous, even from this standpoint of someone who is atheistic or agnostic. If you treat the government as if it is divine, that it will surpass human fallibility, you're setting yourself up for failure. The government is by no stretch of the imagination beyond the extent of corruption, and we should not treat it as if it is. So many people in our culture want to say the government is the arbiter of morality. Not just that it's the arbiter of its own laws, but it should be the one who arbitrates morality across all people. We see so many people who want the expansion of the government to get to the point where it can dictate the shape of culture. Instead of trying to eradicate government influence from culture, they want culture to be somewhat government regulated, and that's a very dangerous thing. We should be very careful about how we take the Lord's name, and we should also be careful about the things we make out to be idols. And on that, we'll be back here shortly. Southern gentlemen, we're outside enjoying the liberty of nature in our wingback chairs. Now, of course, we're located in the Jolton area of metropolitan Nashville, and Jolton is the one area that you can enjoy the liberty of the country without the confinement of the city. Now, I want to discuss something I've seen here recently on our local news stations in the Nashville area. They were discussing President Trump and his proposals on what we should do in response to, to gun violence and the sort of narrative that is centered around gun control. Now, the particular news anchor, perhaps it was the writer who wrote this segment, had mentioned that President Trump was now walking back his previous proposal to raise the minimum age of gun ownership to 21, that he was now proposing that we do a study to investigate whether or not raising the minimum age of gun ownership would work. 
Now, the news anchor was delivering this statement, but communicated in such a way that the tone and the language suggested this was a bad thing, that it was unfortunate that the Trump was now walking back his earlier plan. And what really bothers me, me about this is that it's evidence of a very sick culture that we're much more interested in pushing through the things which are emotionally based instead of waiting for reason or rationality or evidence. The main issue I have with this is even beyond the topic of, of firearms and our civil liberties centered around the Second Amendment, but it's the fact that so many things in our culture we want to push through our emotional disposition and not spend any time contemplating the, the evidence side of arguments. Now, especially when it comes to things like governmental policies, we really should be interested in study-based decisions and evidence-based decisions because so often whenever a government policy comes into effect, it doesn't get taken back. Once a, a government program begins, it is generally here to stay. One of the things which you can most reliably count on to stay in existence is anything which the government proposes and is able to manifest into reality especially when we are considering things which do involve things such as violence and actually creating ways of, of helping better our society, we really should be interested in evidence and not just pushing through whatever we think feels right. Imagine if I were to come to you, and this is again going to be a little bit of a silly example, but imagine if I came to you and said, as an elder in the Church of the Nazarene, I've decided that fun is terrible. I want to do away with all things which are fun. All the children's toys, they must be gathered up, and they are to be done away with because they are demonic. Now, many of you, maybe you have children and you just have children in your life, you would be saying, well, that's a bit ridiculous. Children, they, they should be able to have fun. But what if I told you we had actually done a bit of a study and evidence and we found that certain toys were in fact rather demonic and rather disturbing, such as? This Furby would be our primary example. Yes, the Furby, a product of Tiger Electronics back in the 1990s, we can look at it and find that it is rather disturbing. If we came to you and said that certain toys are rather disturbing, such as this Furby, and instead of proposing that we don't let your children have toys, we simply said, this Furby is a bit disturbing, we are going to take them, throw them in fire, pour salt over their remains, and then spend time in prayer that they may never return, that may be something which you could probably say, I agree with. There's some, some reason behind that, and there's even some evidence to support that those things are, in fact, quite creepy. But, back to our main point. We should live in a culture which values and is ready to accept evidence and spend time in reason, spend time with the divine gift of reason. If we go back and we understand our Christian heritage, we understood that many of the great brothers and sisters before us in Christ understood that reason and rationality were divine gifts. Yet, so many people in our world, they want to cast away this divine gift of reason to pursue an emotional argument. This is a very unfortunate thing, and it is antagonistic towards the church's call to be transformed, have our minds transformed, and not just conform with whatever the world wants to push along as its emotional thought at that moment. I think it's not only reflective of the culture, but also very reflective of, you know, our arbiters of knowledge, which in this case is the media. Often, oftentimes that's where a lot of people, just, you know, general people in general, that is a common source of knowledge, any, any place in the media. And oftentimes this is how the media chooses to share it. Yes, and that's a very bad thing. It's very dangerous. Alright, for our final segment, I want us to return to a few individuals from church history. 
These are individuals we discussed last week on episode 31 with Tools for Liberty in our Hot Not or Sanctified segment. Now, I want us to talk about Francis of Rome and then Vivia Perpetua. These are both people who have been venerated as saints, but they're really important into understanding how we should live in our modern day and age. Now, I want us to first talk about Francis of Rome because she really lives an example which I think we can all live by. We can all be inspired by. So oftentimes we've we found ourselves in a world that wants to look to the government for solutions for all problems, especially when it comes to the problem of healthcare. However, Francis of Rome is a person who has a lot of tragedy in her life, and yet she never uses the tragedy as a scapegoat for her own dispositions. She never uses the tragedy as a scapegoat for her own ambition in life, but instead she oftentimes overcomes great feats in order to be someone who really does a lot for the world around her, and she does a lot in the church. Just to give a quick recap on who Francis of Rome was, she was a saint who lived in the 1300s to the 1400s, so she's a much later saint than some of the other characters we've talked about from early church history. And of course she lives in Rome. This is a different Saint Francis than Saint Francis of Assisi. And her story can basically be wrapped up into this. She's a young noblewoman who feels a call to become a nun at a young age. But her father has a totally different plan for her. He wants her to get married and she ends up getting married to a, a relatively good family. They're actually not problematic. And she she always has this call in life to to be someone who gives up their status in order to help the poor, help those who are less fortunate. Of course, to understand the concept of helping the poor, one has to have a good working knowledge of what the word poor even means. As we look at scripture, a lot of times we think of poor and we want to compare that to people today, but a lot of times in the ancient world, people who were clarified as poor, they were people who they, they may not have had a voice in society to some capacity. They were usually the orphan, the stranger, or the widow, and or the sick. The sick are also included in that group. A lot of times these were people who they, they did not have a choice to do better in life. It wasn't like there were people who didn't have a job. There were people who literally had something keeping them from doing better in life. Anthony? Yeah, I wanted to point out on that that most of them, they didn't have the means to not be poor. Yeah. <clears throat> These people were blind, they were lame, extremely sick, or they were an old widow, which most of the time in society, if you, if you become too far elderly and you don't have any family... Yeah. Odds are you're probably not going to be well taken care of unless people are going to be really charitable. And so, really, back to the Ten Commandments we were talking about earlier, even the, the commandment to honor your father and mother, that really, if we understand the language of this and the sentiment which is being communicated to us from this, it's the idea of taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. But what we learn from Francis of Rome is that taking care of those who can't take care of themselves does not mean turning to the government or voting in certain policies that will take care of people. What we learn from Francis of Rome is that you yourself have personal responsibility in doing this. She has a lot of tragedy in her life, and there's a plague that breaks out in Rome in her life. She loses a lot of family members. A lot of her immediately close by family members die as a result of this. And even her house gets decimated in all of this. If you can just imagine a noblewoman who has felt the call to be a nun at a young age, but she ends up getting married. And, of course, the thing with nuns is they're the bride of, the, of Christ. They're understood to be married to the church, sort of like a, a priest is understood to be married to the church. The nuns, they're married to the church. In other words, so they've taken a vow of celibacy, so they're not going to get married. They're not going to have kids. She's not able to do that, but she still has that call in her life. And she actually creates a order of women who are, are ministers. They still minister to the poor, even though they're, they're allowed to be married and things of that nature. What we learn from her is in the midst of this plague that breaks out, even though her house is largely destroyed by a series of very unfortunate events, she goes and turns a part of her house into a hospital. 
And this is what is so phenomenal about St. Francis of Rome. In the midst of great tragedy, in the midst of everything which would be thrown up in her face, she takes her own life and says, I am going to create a hospital so that other people can be benefited from this. Now, I want to read from us from the book of Acts and talk about the idea of charity in the church. Because a lot of people, and even times we find politicians who will say, if you're a Christian, then you have to vote for this policy. Government compulsion is not charity. I, I hate to have to point that out, but some sort of external proxy form of charity is not actually charity. It's, it's a corruption of the idea of charity itself. And I want us to look at this because so many times as Christians, we have people tell us that we're being unfaithful or being hypocrites if we don't agree with whatever it is that people are demanding, which again, most of those people are taking the Lord's name in vain. But let's read from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all, some translations will say, and fear, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. All right, so I would like to point out what we find in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 45. This is not a biblical argument for socialism or communism. If anything, this is no government involvement at all. This is people voluntarily. Again, the notion being voluntarily and personal conviction is very important here. People are convicted personally to contribute to the lives of one another. They're being convicted to, to be performing signs and wonders. And in fact, a lot of times we think of signs and wonders being very mystical. What we find happening here in Acts chapter 2 is just people caring about one another. But again, government compulsion is not the same thing as caring. These are people who are personally involved in this. Sort of like Francis of Rome who says there's a plague. I'm not going to make some appeal that a larger institution will come and bring solutions to this. But instead, I myself, I'm going to open up my house. I'm going to build something out of the ruins. And that is how we are going to help people who literally cannot help themselves. And it's not even a figurative thing they can't help themselves. They, there were people literally affected by the plague that couldn't do anything for themselves. So what we learned from Francis of Rome really is this. Personal responsibility is key to charity. Charity by proxy is not charity at all. If we are going to be charity, charitable people, if we're going to actually live up to the calling of Christ, then we ourselves must have personal responsibility. And let's move on a little bit further. I want us to now talk about the other saint we discussed last Friday, and that is Saint Perpetua. Or you may look her up and you may find that her first name is Vivia. Vivia Perpetua is another way that this lady has been distinguished. And one of the things that we can find so inspirational from her story is she's from much earlier. She's from the the third century. And or excuse me, I think the fourth century. Um, those numbers and things get a little off when you, you spend time trying to figure out which century is which. But if we go back to, to her time, she is one of the early martyrs in the church. And what we see happening in Vivia Perpetua's life is she's converted to Christianity as a, a young woman, but her father is very displeased with this because the Caesar, the emperor of Rome, is in a mood to purge the world of Christians. So he's taking a lot of them, taking the amphitheaters where they're dished out brutal deaths, very tragic deaths. Again, the argument that people are converted into the church because of fear of hell pales in comparison to the reality of what people had immediately in front of them. To try to sell people who know nothing of God of some distant, unverifiable fear that they, they've never heard of, they can't see, 
is really hard to make that argument when people had a very visible fear right in front of them. And that was the tortures that led up to martyrdom. Well, anyway, St. Perpetua, she was of a, a place where she was challenged to identify as a Christian or not. And she ultimately decides that she's going to, even though it means she's going to be separated from her child. She's going to be brutally tortured and ultimately killed. There's a, a wonderful text we have in the church, and that's the prison diary of St. Perpetua. And why this is so fascinating is, again, a lot of times when people were converted in the early church, it wasn't out of some fear of, of eternal damnation from a hellfire brimstone preacher, but instead they were read this text and they heard the stories of the saints and the, the apostles and even some of their fellow believers who suffered martyrdom. And it was the admiration of these figures and their faith, admiration of their faith that led a lot of people to believe in Christ. Well, St. Perpetua, a lot of people have tried to discredit her because the church that she was brought into had some connections to Montanism. And Montanism was an ancient heresy where basically they rejected the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. We're not going to get into Montanism right now. But anyways, they found an angle where they could say there was something corrupt about the church that Perpetua was brought into, therefore we can discredit her. Which brings us to a large problem that we have in our modern society. People are always looking for some reason to discredit people. If they can loosely tie you to something, they can discredit you. And we had had a conversation about this last Friday, and I think we had all agreed that, that we could be inspired by St. Perpetua, whether or not that there is any connection with Montanism, because there was no evidence of actually any connection to Montanism. And Anthony, you brought up a really good part, point about the due process in this before. Yeah, um, last week we, we did discuss on guilt by association, which isn't always doesn't always hold the scrutiny. But then, you know, in this instance, the due process hasn't even been fulfilled. No mm -hmm. one actually knows whether or not she is associated with Montanism and to what degree. Her writings don't really reflect it. And, you know, otherwise, I'm not sure what other records they have on her church, but no one has actually proposed actual evidence that um, they were so influenced by that. So, yeah, it's it's speculation. And again, as we learn the story of her, she's a new convert. She's just gone through sort of the, the process of catechism, learning what it means to be a Christian. She's new to the church. She's not somebody who has spent uh, 50 to, to 70 years as a devout Christian. See, so somebody who's a young woman who's just been converted into Christianity. Now, obviously, her father's a pagan, so she doesn't have that heritage there. But as she's converted into the faith, she's challenged to give up her faith to, to be spared or to embrace death. And so many people want to discredit her authenticity because they can tie it to a, a ancient heresy, even though that has nothing to do with her personal faith. But we as the church, we need to be inspired by her, and we also need to get back to having the virtue, the personal virtue of the due process. Again, when the, the founding fathers of our nation put together our Constitution, they understood that the due process was not just a legalistic thing relative to a certain nation, but it was something which was given to humanity out of divine providence. It's something that, that is something that it has eternal weight to it. We, we should be people who embrace the due process. And now... I don't like it when the Founding Fathers spend too much time attributing things to God, which are not of God, and that is taking the Lord's name in vain. But as we do understand this concept, we should take the concept of the due process and apply that to our personal lives. We shouldn't always be looking to discredit people. One of the things that really bothers me is the language of triggered that people use in our modern day and age. Basically, if you can label someone as triggered, you can say, oh, well, they're not being rational. We can discredit that. If you can call someone a, a certain name, you can tie them to a certain group, you can discredit people. I don't like 
the rhetorical devices used to discredit people. And as we come together as the church and we look throughout history, we'll see that just about everybody can be connected to some sort of sin in their life. And even when Jesus deals with people, when he comes to the situation where they're the crowd gathered around her to stone the woman, he makes the, the statement, those without sin throw the first stone. But you'll also notice in the story that he doesn't actually point out the hypocrisy of the other people because that's rather pointless. It doesn't do much for the world. The world can sort out hypocrisy and condemnation itself. Christ actually takes the situation and says, go and sin no more, be transformed into something greater. We in our society, we need to value the due process in our personal life. We need to weigh evidence and not just do what feels right in the moment. And after we have the evidence in and after we deal with other people who may have problems in their life, we need to push them towards transformation, towards holiness, and towards something better. It doesn't really serve much of a purpose for us to just want to run around discrediting everyone based on rhetorical devices, but instead we need to move towards something better. So I wrap up today's program with this. Be inspired by St. Francis of Rome and her personal responsibility in charity, and also be inspired by people like Vivia Perpetua, who were willing to die for the faith, and not only were they willing to die for the faith, but even though there was a slim chance that you could discredit them by, by some connection to Montanism, there's no evidence that it's actually real, and if we respect the due process, then we can go along and say we, we have full, full appreciation for people like Perpetua. We, we can really appreciate them without worrying too much about the Montanism. With that being said, I hope you enjoyed our, our program. If you did, please share our content. That will do so much to help us out. You can find us our free podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and CastBox. Please leave us a review. If you leave us a review on iTunes or CastBox, that will help us out tremendously. You can find me on Twitter at Proctor, And, of course, we're also on Facebook and YouTube at Kingdom of the Logos. Thank you so much for viewing with us. And on that, have a blessed day.